Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry, uh, and we are back this week to talk about the 1989 Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing. So let's walk into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Sam. Good morning. Morning. Um, this is a uh, a very timely movie in lots and lots and lots of ways. Um, timely because of current events, you know, thinking about uh, police violence and this that's at the the center of of um, one of the crucial scenes in this movie. But it's also timely in terms of Spike Lee. I mean, this is so we're. Full disclosure, we're recording this on the morning of uh, Friday, June 12th. Um, he had a new movie come out today. Um, I presume you have not seen the, uh, the Five Bloods yet. I will tell you, I got up at 3.30 this morning and watched it. So I was I was very excited. I wanted to watch it before we, um, oh. uh, before we recorded today. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it, uh, I really it's already been working on me. Like as mm. I was watching it, my first response was, I'm not like, I'm not a huge, I used to really be into, especially Vietnam war movies, but that's, I sort of doesn't interest me as much anymore. So as I was watching, I'm like, I don't know, maybe, but you know, ever since that movie ended, it's just, I keep thinking about, I mean, it's only been a few hours, but it's all, I've already like started to like it more as I've thought about different things in it. And it's something I want to go back to. So this is not going to be a, a podcast about that film, but, <laughs> know that it's out there and by the time you're listening to this if you haven't already there's not a lot of new movies coming out right now so this is a new movie from a really important filmmaker so uh so go watch that on netflix um barrett to start with uh can you tell me a little bit of your history with spike lee and with this film in particular with viewing this film in particular yeah i'll uh then this film really kind of does begin my history with, with spike lee and uh as i recall i i first watched it in uh would have been the summer of 1990 i believe um amy and i were in our first house in circle pines and uh we moved in there in the uh winter of 89 and i remember my mom had given us a a, a vcr player for christmas and so i'm pretty sure as i look back over the uh meteorological records of uh, minnesota i'm pretty sure that it would have been around july probably july 3rd in fact 1990 um because the temperature got close to 100 that day and i'm pretty sure in our small non-air-conditioned house it was over 100. Uh, and so amy and i both have this extremely vivid memory of watching this film and um sweating profusely ourselves and it really it, it really helped us get into the, uh, the to the mood of the film um so since then i've seen a number of spike lee films i haven't necessarily kept up with his uh with all of his production but i've certainly um uh, I've watched, uh, you know, the Mal Mal his Malcolm X film, um, 25th Hour, uh, some of the sort of less typical films like uh, Inside Job, Inside Man, um, but and uh, I've seen uh, Black Klansman most recently as well. Yeah, he. I, I so this movie came out in 1989, so I was uh, 12 when this came out, um, and I have dis a distinct memory of watching um, at the movies with Siskel and Ebert. When mm -hmm. they when they talked about this film, and I because I remember seeing, I forget on the on I forget that on that show they showed pretty long clips of the films mm -hmm. that they reviewed, and I remember seeing the um, the scene where um, I can't remember the name of the the I don't even know if he has a name in the movie where the the character comes by and walks on Bug and Out's sneakers. Oh and yeah, like, and, yeah. And, and I remember seeing that, and then listening to them talk about this film, and I will say I think. 
Spike Lee might be the first director that I could name. Mm. Um, I mean, I think I think I knew that Steven Spielberg was a person, but I didn't quite know what he did. Um, and I think it's because I remember seeing clips of Spike Lee in the film, but that this was clearly a Spike Lee film. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so he might be the the my introduction to the fact that like films were made by sometimes by a person. I mean, they're made by people, but like that they might be the vision of a person because this was so much talked about um, in that way. So that was kind of my introduction to him, and I probably. I probably didn't see this until, I don't know, 92, 93, sometime in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it probably around the time Malcolm X came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's somebody who, and I, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit about what makes maybe a, a Spike Lee, a great director. Um, but he's, he was one of, not only one of the first people I thought of as, oh, this is somebody who makes movies. This is what a director is, but that he, in my mind, made important movies mm-hmm. because I saw this, I saw, um, do the right, or I, I saw Malcolm X. Um, and I, so, so for a while he was somebody who, when he came out with the movie, I wanted to go, yeah. I wanted to go see it. Um, one of the most interesting movies that he made, which is one that I almost never hear people talk about. Cause he also makes movies sometimes where they, sort of come out and nobody seems to say anything about them. But when I was in graduate school, I took uh, an African-American film studies course. Uh, and it was right when the movie Bamboozled came out. Have you oh, seen yeah, it? Yeah, Bamboozled? Sure. And so I watched that a couple times that mm-hmm. semester because we were, we were, it was a brand new movie and we were studying it in that class. Um, and that isn't, that's a pretty amazing movie that, that I, it's like, I, I've never uh, other than it feels to me like it only exists in this course that I took because I've never encountered other people in the world unless I showed them the movie who had, who had seen it. And I thought that was, so if, if you, if you like Spike Lee and want to go see something really interesting that he made, well, everything he makes is pretty interesting, but that is a, is a particularly interesting mm-hmm. movie. Um, and then obviously my most recent interaction with him was this morning, um, <laughs> seeing his new movie. So, so he is still somebody that, um, that I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about. Um, do you have a, do you have a favorite Spike Lee movie of the things that you've seen? Well, I mean, <laughs> do the right thing is now, now right up there since I've watched, since I've watched it again. Um, I, I really like 25th hour. I, I think 25th hour is a little, is a little underrated. Um, and I, I, I like a lot of things about it, but I, I, I like Edward Norton's performance in that film. And, um, and, and, and I like it because, um, you know, Lee has been accused of, um, and partly because of his diary that he kept on doing the right thing, he's been accused of sort of um, having an attitude towards white people that uh, that suggests that that he believes that ultimately all white people actually are racist at some level. Um, but I, I I think that in in Twenty Fifth Hour, I think the Edward Norton character is is very complex and and very sympathetic, just as I think Sal. And do the right thing as a sympathetic character, even though I know he and Diana, Danny Aiella had different views of Sal's views on race. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I really, I really like Twenty Fifth Hour. In that, well, in yeah, that. and and I would say, you know, and we'll probably talk more about this, but I would say it is, it is completely possible to say that uh, Sal. I mean, so the the dispute between Danny Aiello and Spike Lee was is is um, is Sal racist. And it's completely possible to say, yes, he's racist, but he's, he's also a sympathetic character. There's also sure. things about him that are sympathetic. And so, so I think both of those things can be true. Well, and, and, and I think, Sam, that's maybe a good um, kind of heuristic for thinking about this film, because, you know, I think that a lot of people who want the film to say one thing only 
uh, are either frustrated by it or take it to task or accuse Spike Lee of being confused. Um, and I think that's pretty unfair. Um, I think that we we allow a lot of filmmakers to offer us complex visions, and I think that's what I think that's what Lee is doing. It to me, that's one of the things that makes it a great film. Right. I mean, that we this movie wouldn't stand the test of time if it wasn't as as nuanced and complex about the ish, the questions it raises and the answers it gives, and it, you know, and and if it gives answers and what kind of answers it gives. Um, when you think about him as a filmmaker, uh, and then so I want to I want to get sort of the the general questions out of the way, and then dive into this film specifically. When you think about uh, going to see a, a Spike Lee film, um, what are the things that that make him a particularly uh, powerful filmmaker, a particularly great filmmaker? Well, you know, especially in the films that he made with the cinematographer for for Do the Right Thing, Ernest Dickerson, um, I think that his uh, his films are uh, always visually very inventive, um, and you get, and you get a lot of that, of course, in, in, in "Do the Right Thing." Um, to, to me, there's a kind of um, exuberance and energy about the way he uses the camera, and um, and even the fact that it's some, sometimes unpredictable. You never know exactly from one film to the next what he's going to be able to do. He also seems to me to be, to an extent that's not fully recognized, he actually is the master of many different genres. There really isn't a single Spike Lee genre. I think early in his career, he he sort of got pigeonholed in a way in a particular making a particular type of film. But then, you know, I mentioned uh, 25th Hour. That's a different kind of film. Um, Inside Man. I mean, that's basically a bank heist thriller. Um, I haven't seen *The Five Bloods*, but he said it's a David Lean type epic. So yeah, um, well, it, and it also—I mean, it is playing with um, all kinds of uh, Vietnam War movies. I mean, there's there's some sort of explicit references to things like *Apocalypse Now*. Uh, if you're a fan of *The Treasure of the Sierra Madre*, there's oh. definitely lots of lots of allusions to that. I mean, so it's yeah. I mean, he he he's also definitely somebody who um, plays with. The history of film. I mean, he's he's such a, right. a, a student of the history of film, and and it it comes out in lots and lots of ways in his stuff. The thing that I think about with his movies is, regardless of what he's making the movie about, and this is why I'm sort of interested in anything that he makes is I feel like he elevates it. Like it, there's so many things where it's like, oh, it's a it's a biopic of somebody, but it's like, but if Spike Lee's making the biopic, there's going to be, it's going to be more than just this person's life story. Um, that, that do the right thing is a, you know, you could say it's about, uh, race in America, but it's elevated even to these other questions. I would say, and this, this was my, my sense watching, uh, the five bloods today was it's, uh, as I said, I, you know, I was not really, I don't know if I want to see another Vietnam war movie, but it's definitely elevated to be about a lot more than that. Um, right. and, and that, um, that gets to one of the things that we were talking about a little bit, which I think another thing that comes through in his, um, in his films is empathy. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, I mean, Roger Ebert talked about that's what this movie teaches <laughs> is, uh, is empathy. And even, you know, the film I saw this morning, you're, so much of so much of of it is about seeing like okay we're gonna get to see these characters in some different ways um which i think is you know part of why this screenplay is so amazing is mm -hmm. because it's not um there isn't sort of clear distinct this character is this this i mean i feel like like um 
Pino is maybe the the most character where it's like, man, you don't really. I'm I, I'm trying to rack my brain to say, is there a moment where I sort of empathize with Pino? He's about the only character I don't feel that way about. Yeah, yeah, he he, he yeah, he's pretty he's yeah, he's pretty hard to empathize with. Um, but he's he, also uh, believable though. I right, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, to me, to me, there's a couple of places where. He could have become more sympathetic, but I think that the decision not to make him more sympathetic rings true. So I think when he's having the conversation with his father at the table and he's talking about, you know, his friends making fun of him and all and all that. And but then, you know, you think maybe he could turn the corner, but then Smiley shows up and he goes off on him or the scene where and in a sense, you could say Mookie's trying to raise his racial consciousness. You know, mm -hmm. talking to him about all how his you know favorite his favorite act, actor, favorite athletes, all these these are these are black folks, um, and you think you know there's a chance for Pino, but um, so I, I think in in that sense he's he's a character where um, I think it's I, I think it's good that he in a sense didn't didn't redeem himself. Um, I, I I think uh, he he does have conflicting emotions, but he's just decided to go you know in one direction, and it kind of gets that that arc kind of gets completed in the in the storeroom when he you know wrestles with Vito and basically it's clear he's made up his mind about what he thinks yeah i i was struck you know thinking about um the way that lee depicts really every character i mean sal sal is one of the most interesting because you spend so much time with him um in the movie it keeps sort of it keeps i mean the the, the this the way the story moves is such a circle around this block where I feel like you're, and this is one of the great constructions of the filmmaking and the screenplay is you're constantly following Mookie into Sal's and then out of Sal's. So you constantly get to walk up and down that street mm -hmm. and you get this huge ensemble cast who you get to meet individually. And then you keep see them. If you pay attention, they're constantly intermixing. You're seeing, you know, these two people having a conversation here. And then later on, you're seeing them with these other people, you know, and it's mm -hmm. because it's, both this big cast, but it's such a small set. Yeah. Um, and I will say one of the interesting things is I watched uh, this time when I watched it, I was watching uh, on my computer monitor. So I had headphones on mm. and I heard so much more with headphones because there's so much as he's walking down the street where you don't see characters, but mm -hmm. you're hearing pieces of their conversation, um, which I think if I was just watching in my living room, I might not have had the TV loud enough to catch. Oh, there's a mm. there's another conversation I'm hearing as Mookie's walking by. I'm hearing a piece of this, and that actually plays into what's happening in this um, what's happening in this film. Um, but when I the the thing that I thought of so much when I was thinking about Sal, when I was thinking about what Lee does with all of these characters to help you both empathize with them, but also be challenged by them is I thought a lot about Thucydides. <laughs> um, we in, in CWC, we have students for, I mean, it's, mm. a, these are classically paired pieces in Thucydides, you know, where, or one of them is, is um, Pericles funeral oration where he's talking about, you know, kind of the virtues and values of Athens and what makes Athens great and why they're a school to the rest of the world. You know, and I think there are moments in, uh, moments where you're watching Sal where it's like, oh, he, this is Sal putting his, what I truly believe he believes, right? Like like his, in terms of really, you know, when he's talking with, with Pino about like how proud he is to have fed this community and how proud he is that they grew up on his food and how he's not going to leave. And you sort of feel like, and even the stuff where he's like, Mookie, you've been like a son to me. Like there's, this is, there's, there's some moving stuff there. And you say, okay, well, 
that is Sal. At the same time, you also get Sal's dialogue with the Melians, right? From Thucydides, where the they're basically when push comes to shove, they say the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. And that's what I <laughs> when I think about Sal with the bat hitting the hitting the radio, it's like, oh yeah, that's Sal too. You know, yeah. like it's it's sort of a perfect picture of that. And if you're watching other characters in that way, he's giving you both of those and saying, both of these are this character. It's not that one of those things was false about them. It's just they actually contain these uh, these complexities within them because the characters in his movie is, are a lot like human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's how I think that's how Mookie and Sal's relationship works, right? That this there's there's always this kind of um, they they needle each other and. Uh, you know, there's always this uh, the threat that maybe he's going to fire Mookie, and and Mookie has you know clearly kind of a love hate relationship with with Sal, and um, that just seems yeah that seems to me that kind of complexity is much more uh, satisfying and interesting to watch uh, than just straight stereotypes. Do you remember? So one of the things, and again, I wasn't old enough to kind of be uh intellectually aware of this but uh in reading about this film and listening to interviews about this film um this had there was a lot of sort of critical controversy around this film when it came out um some reviewers talking about how this movie was gonna incite violence and riots and things like that Uh, i will say i remember that type of language around movies you know two or three years later, I remember when boys in the hood came out, that was definitely, I mean, uh, that was definitely a, 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 I mean, it's so interesting to, to read this stuff now and watch this and think about what was it like to be 13 or 14 in a small, almost entirely white town in Southern Minnesota. And what I thought about the world through the things that came through the television, right? The things that I was seeing about these things and how, um, conditioned i was to fear things because mm-hmm. of this you know like like so so i really did think man if you and i mean it sounds so crazy to say this but like man if you go see boys in the hood in the theater like there's gonna be there's gonna be shootings and i mean like that was that was the messages that were being that were being sent and i mean i gotta tell you like it's it's you internalize that stuff and you, you know, mm-hmm. I shouldn't mm-hmm. I, I should use I statements. I internalize that stuff. And, you know, so, so I, I think I was a little young to understand that around this movie when it came out, but reading those things makes me think about, Oh, I, I just remember a whole series of films um, coming out that were, and some of them were explicitly about that. You think about a movie like menace to society, like mm-hmm. it's, you know, that that's even pushing that idea, um, that idea further. But, um, but do you remember that, that those kind of critical controversies around this film when it came out? Yeah, I, I remember some of those, but also what I, what I remember pretty, pretty vividly, Sam, is are the um, historical context for the film that get referenced to uh, in the, in the film itself. So for example, um, the chanting of Howard beach, in uh, the Howard Beach incident that occurred just a couple of years before the film came out, or um, up on the wall, there's uh, some of those graffiti says Tawana told the truth. So that Tawana Brawley case. So the, 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 so those are the things I remember. The film coming out in that context, uh, in the same way that if it came out now, we'd set it in the context of um, of the George Floyd uh, murder. Did you see? Um, this is uh, probably a week ago. Um, Spike Lee 
put out a a, sh- a short film called um, I think it was called The Three Brothers. The Three Brothers, yeah, yeah. So yeah, what, it, yeah. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about what that was? Yeah. So that's that that that's a minute and a half. It's a minute and a half film. That's got uh, no. There's no narration. No no diet. It's uh, it's uh, two pieces of uh, reality and one piece of uh, of uh, a fiction. So you have uh, the death of Eric Garner. Um, the death of uh, Radio Rahim and the death of George Floyd played as a splice together into one narrative that goes from the initial arrest to the removal of each of the bodies. And it, to me, is one of the most powerful examples of, uh, of images simply speaking for themselves. I, I think it, started, it starts with a question on the screen. I think it's something about will history keep repeating itself? Um, and then it just goes into that minute and a half and it's, it's all, it's all, it's all you need. And it's, it's amazing that, um, it's amazing. And of course, a little bit discouraging to think that it was so easy for Lee to take his footage from 31 years ago, uh, and fit it into contemporary events. Um, and of course there was an event, uh, similar to the death of George Floyd about six years before the film. Uh, came out the death of Michael Stewart at the hands of of police, um, where as in the George Floyd case, you actually had conflicting autopsy reports about the cause of the cause of death. The, um, how does this film play differently in twenty twenty um, <laughs> than maybe it play? And I mean, in some ways, it plays the same probably. But how does it play differently in twenty twenty than say nineteen ninety? I think I think a couple ways in which it plays differently. Um, I, I I play a game in my head, uh, Sam, when I watch older films, especially when I watch older films noir. I always ask myself, how would this film, how would this plot have been different if they'd had some of today's technology? So how would it play out differently if there were cell phones, for example? So so a couple of things to me that they don't exactly date the film, but they do put it in a particular historical context. Certainly, um, the boombox. Um, and you know, everybody had boom boxes then. And of course he's got the radio rahid and has got the boom box to kill all boom boxes. So I, I just think that literally uh, it defeats another one in the movie. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, uh, I, I love that battle. He defeats and he just walks away. So I think there's that, but I also think there's, um, rap, rap music has become so mainstream that I think the way in which rap music was challenging to uh, a certain audience, especially a white audience and certainly a character like Sal, I think that's a little bit harder to capture these days um, because yeah, people make rap, you know, rap, uh, a lot of white boys listen to rap music now. So, but I think in, in 1989, it was still very much defined uh, as the, the rap of the African-American, uh, the music of the ra- African-American community. So to me, that's those are a couple of things. But otherwise, again, it's it's amazing how little uh, one needs to accommodate historical context. Um, one of the things that uh, that jumped out at me was that, like I said, the the size of the ca- how great the cast is in this, and how great the the characters are, even if you're only getting little um, little moments from them. And there are there are. The more you watch this film, the more you realize there are there are small moments that tell you a lot about this film. Or, or to go back to what we were saying before, I mean, Sal gets this long, gets these sort of long speeches or stories that he's telling, where you're like, okay, here I'm learning about Sal. But some of these other characters, you just have these little moments that accomplish as much to tell you 
to round that character out or make you see something else about them. So I'm just curious, um, what are the characters that that jump out to you as particularly interesting or performances or or actors or actresses in this film? Well, I would have to say right away that I had completely, and this is going to sound awful uh, about my memory, but I had completely forgotten how large and um, pivotal uh, Ossie Davis's role was as the mayor. Um, and of course, Ossie Davis is, you know, he's a, he and, and Ruby D, his uh, real, real life wife, they were icons of the civil rights movement. And so um, that's, uh, to me, that's another very typical kind of Spike Lee move uh, that he puts these actors that have a particular residence uh, in, in, in the film. So the, and the way that, I mean, DeMayer is important in a, in a lot of, in a lot of different, a lot of different respects, um, not only delivering the title of the film, but, but even the way he exposes, um, you know, riffs within the community, the young versus the old, that, that kind of thing. But of course, um, co a couple of other characters really interesting to me is, uh, Mr. Senior Love. Um, and, I didn't remember who the actor was, and I spent the first half of the movie trying to figure out who 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 is that. And of course, it's it's Samuel L. Jackson, and he's just he's just great. And the other one that's really interesting to me, and this is a little this is a little bit of a personal connection in a sense, is um, Roger Guinevere Smith is Smiley, and um, I, I didn't think I knew anything about Roger Guinevere Smith, and um, I was listening to uh, to another podcast. Um, and, and one of the participants mentioned that Roger Guinevere Smith is really big in the L.A. theater scene. He's the kind of person where if you hear he's in a show, you go see him. Uh, you go see it. And, and then she mentioned that he had done a one-man show about Rodney King. And I thought, hold on. I went to Benumber Theater in 2015 and saw a one-man show on Rodney King. How many one-man shows on Rodney King are there? And it turns out, yeah, I had seen uh, oh, really? on the Penumbra, on the Penumbra stage. Uh, and I hadn't made the connection to that point. But his character, I mean, to me, he and DeMayer, um, you know, Ossie Davis has more screen time. But, I mean, Smiley, I mean, so, you know, DeMayer gives the film the title, but Smiley gives the film uh, its closing image. And, uh, and really kind of, he sets up, to me, that's what this film is about. This film is about how do you take both Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X seriously? Um, you don't choose between the two. And, uh, and, and that photograph, which is so, so, I think Roger Ebert remarked, is that the only photograph we have of Martin Luther King Jr. and, uh, and Malcolm X? Probably yes. Um, but, but that photograph be beautifully expresses both tension and, and unity at the same time. And the other thing I found out when I did a little bit of research is those closing quotations uh, that Lee gives, you know, one from Martin Luther King Jr. saying, um, violence is understandable but not acceptable. And Malcolm X saying violence is understandable and therefore acceptable. Um, those two speeches were made within two days of each other in 1964. Uh, one was um, Martin Luther King Jr. accepting his Nobel Peace Prize. And the other was Malcolm X addressing the Peace Corps. Um, and to me, that's the other thing about Spike Lee. The guy is fiercely intelligent. Um, and, and that intelligence just imbues everything he does. And picking those two particular quotes, he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, but the wonderful thing about it is, is history handed it to him. I mean, he was smart enough to look into history, but there it is. It hands it to him. It's like these two guys are saying these things almost simultaneously. And that is a, that's, 
that's a conundrum. That's not a con that's not a contradiction. That's that's a conundrum. And to me, that's what this film is giving you. This film is giving you a conundrum. It's not telling you it's this way or it's that way. It's saying it might be this way, it might be that way. You got to figure it out. Yeah, I will say uh, two other uh, performances that uh, that were to me really interesting to 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 rewatch and pay attention to. Um, one is another actor who I was very familiar with, but didn't realize he was in this movie, and that's uh, Giancarlo Esposito, yeah. who I I think I was first aware of in Breaking Bad, and then I've gone back and realized he's actually <laughs> in a lot of things that I like. It just he he doesn't. I just didn't associate that Gus Freen was also bugging out. Um, it mm -hmm. was also the the um, investigator in the usual suspects is is oh. Giancarlo Esposito because I always liked that guy I was like man who is that actor and then I realized oh that's that's Gus oh. and that's bugging out you know and that's within five years I mean it's an entirely different entirely different character but um so, so I thought that was that was very interesting to see uh to see his range as a as mm. an actor because mm. I mean, it's just very very different characters. but the 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 character who I think if you had asked me before I rewatched this um about Radio Rahim, I would have, I would have told you, does he mm. have lines in this movie, or does he just walk around and like have the the radio showdown? Um, and then I would have, I would, if I thought about it, I would have remembered the love and hate speech, yes. um, which is also going back to what you were talking about. It's another version of all these things we're talking about that that these things exist together. They exist within people. I mean, this is the this is the Thucydides thing too, right? That 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 both those things are there. Um, and one of the interesting things in that speech, so he talks about I me, mean, he, he goes through the thing about love knocking out hate. And then he, what, what's really interesting, if you pay attention to what he says, he says to Mookie at the end of that, if I love you, I love you. And if I hate you, and he doesn't say, I hate you. He says, if I hate you, and he kind of leaves it there. And like, and that's interesting. Cause it's not because, cause love KOs hate. So it's like, if I hate you, what do I do with that? Is sort of, so that's really interesting. And then the other scene that I thought, and it's, this is Bill Nunn is the is the actor where I thought he told me so much about him or rounded out his character so much is when he goes to buy the batteries, right? It's this very like confrontational scene mm -hmm. between uh, between Radio Rahim and the the Korean bodega owner, right? Mm -hmm. But there's this moment where he just kind of laughs at the interaction in the middle of it. And it's like, this, it's like, it's and it, it's sort of diffuse. I mean, there's the tension doesn't go away, but that, that little smile and laugh sort of diffuses it. Like, Oh, this isn't going to go. This isn't ultimately going to go badly. It's like, we're, there's this kind mm -hmm. of tension here, but he's just like, it, it's, it's, I can't even describe it. It's this subtle, subtle moment. And I, and because he's somebody who, um, and again, I will, viewing this lens viewing this film through the lens of like a white 13 year old growing up in southern minnesota like radio rahim seems like a he's even shot from oh, below yeah. a lot so he seems mm -hmm. big and imposing and like he could be scary but like he's like a lovable guy <laughs> like there's all these moments where it's like i where watching this now i just thought bill nunn was amazing in that in that role of like allowing him to appear this one way but giving you all these other indications that that he's really not that and even the whole showdown thing it's like i just want to show you that i win and then he walks like there's no more cut to that confrontation um, I, I, yeah i i do want to say too though sam a couple things that um the you know the love hate soliloquy the love hate speech is of course uh from taken from night of the hunter um where robert mitchum plays the psychopathic character the preacher 
and he's got love and hate uh, tattooed on each of his hands. And he gives a very kind of similar speech in, uh, in, in that film. And, and certainly that, that low angle technique, which um, Orson Welles used in particular, I don't know if that was somebody that Spike Lee was emulating necessarily, but shooting characters from below like that to kind of literally increase their stature uh exactly and, and yet at the same time until he's forced into violence um Rita Rahim is not a violent guy you know makes me think again again another one of those kind of historical coincidences that George Floyd was described as a gentle giant you know the six foot six guy who wasn't necessarily a violent person so maybe it's time now to to sort of move a little bit towards um thinking about uh the ending of this movie because that's what gets what gets focused on um mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. and um i found it interesting again having seen this a lot to pay attention to some things that um two things that sal says early in the er, well one is one of the first things he says and then there's something he says in the middle of the movie um that sort of lay the groundwork for uh the the darkness and tragedy towards the end of this which is one of the first things he says when they're just talking about the heat and his sons are arguing with each other and he says i'm going to kill somebody today yeah, yeah. now sal doesn't kill somebody but you know in a in a, in a broader sense like someone's going to die by the end of this day mm -hmm. um and then the other thing that that stuck out at me was um there's a point where mookie's going to make a delivery and um Mookie asks him, is this, is this the right address? And Sal gets upset. And then Sal says, I don't make mistakes, mm. you know? And it's like that. And, and, and I, I gotta say when, when I saw him, heard him say that this time around, it's like, it just like thunderously echoed because it's like, oh, you're about to, you're about to make a really big mistake. <laughs> you know, like, 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 like something really bad is going to happen. And there, there's a moment where you didn't have to do, do the thing you did to, to help propel and, and, and ignite this. Um, so, so those things, you know, leading up to knowing where this film was going, those two lines, um, again, were, were I think really powerful and, and part of why this screenplay is so, is so amazing. Um, so, uh, can you just talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, this film has sort of three endings. You talked about the very, very end, sort of the 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 two quotes at the at the, the last sort of images of the film. Um, but there is the ending, you know, as Sal's is closing up for the night yeah. um, and and the last customers, he, he lets the last customers in. And then there's the ending the next morning. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the first ending, Sam, it's to me, it's, it's kind of a classic, um, in the sense of classical tragedy, it, it, it's a it, it's one of these reversals that some some people don't buy about the film, but to me, it's what makes the film so realistic. Because um, first of all, it's ironic, right? Because Sal has um, delivered this uh, speech about what you know how wonderful it is to have this establishment, and he's gonna you know, rename it Sal and Sons and, you know, and, and uh, he just loves, he just loves, he just loves this whole community and he just loves being there and, and all that. And, and those are not um, fake. I, I only, I only, those are unreal or fake emotions. I think he's really feeling that, right? So the irony and the reversal is because of that mo mo mood, because of that moment, he opens the door, even though they're closed. Um, and you know, and, and you look at that and you think, well, if he continued to be as irritated as he'd been earlier in the film, he never would open the door. So it's the very fact that he's feeling so kindly 
that he opens the door. But of course, that's that's false consciousness. Um, that's one thing he thinks about the neighborhood, but that's not the only thing he thinks about the neighborhood. And he doesn't know what he thinks. He, he, he doesn't fully know or he won't fully admit to himself. And I'm not sure he ever actually does. It's hard to say. That would be maybe the next ending to talk about. But, you know, so, so the fact that he opens the door uh, and that literally opens the door to the, to, to the downfall, um, to me, that's the, and, and the way that he pivots so quickly to me, that's very that's very true to life. I mean, I've, I've been in arguments with people where I think, um, you know, we're having a good time. And then somebody says something. And all of a sudden, things pivot. And you realize that there are emotions, there are feelings, there are realities that you are hiding uh, that need an occasion for them to come out. And one critic, I think it was uh, Terrence Rafferty in New Yorker, um, took Lee to, to task, um, saying, you know, he's he's perpetuating this myth that when we get angry, our true selves come out. Well, I don't know. A lot of a lot of things bring our quote true selves out, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily Sal's true self, but that's Sal's self. Mm -hmm. Sal can't see the contradiction. Sal, Sal can't see the contradiction between giving the mayor or or, or, or Smiley a couple of bucks because he because to Sal that's a true act of act of compassion. Well, it might actually be hiding his own his false consciousness. And to me, that's what that's what that first ending captures, you know, so beautifully. He's brought the baseball bat out before, and he brings the baseball bat out again. So, you know, Lee has beautifully set up, as you said, you know, I'm going to kill somebody. I don't make mistakes. The the tension that arises when people give him a hard time about the pizza and the baseball bat, it's all there. It just it just needs the right uh, or the wrong circumstances for it to actually happen. And then, of course, the second ending is him and Mookie. And, uh, you know, I think Lee also said somewhere that somebody wanted Mookie and, uh, and Sal to embrace. And, uh, well, there's a couple, there's a couple stories with this because this, that one story is that the studio wanted him to do that. And he said, yeah, well, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to do that. But I've also read that in his first draft of the film or mm. first draft of the screenplay, that was basically the ending that he had. And both those could be true, but, but, but by the time they got to, to the, the, the finished product in terms of filming it, that was not a direction he wa he w wanted to go. And what's, what's, what's great about that, about that scene is, you know, not only does it capture the continued tension between, between Sal and Mookie, but it highlights uh, one of the important sub themes of the film, which is, which is who has the money. Um, and you know, the, 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 you know, whether the film to a certain degree is about the people who live in the neighborhood who don't actually have, uh, have any power in the neighborhood because they don't have any money. And so, so the way that Sal turns the money into literal weapons and throws them, throws it at Mookie. Uh, I mean, that, that captures that kind of combination of Sal's own power and privilege, which he doesn't fully recognize, and Mookie's need for the money, and yet his uh, despising the fact that he has to take the money. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that it, that it really captures that well. Um, are there, as you think about, uh, the only other thing that I had on my list to, um, to specifically talk or point out was, and again, this is in part a product of w watching this with headphones on was, um, how great the music is in this movie or mm. how, and, and, and just how much the music is in this movie, both the score and then the, the soundtrack, um, to this, uh, to this film, I mean, uh, uh fight the power is a character in this film. It's, it's, you know, that, <clears throat> that Radio Rahim is walking around with 
with public enemy. I mean, Chuck D might as well just be there with him, right? Like that's, right. <laughs> that's a, that, that, and that song, not only is it, I mean, it's a character, it plays a role in the film um, from the, from the very beginning. Um, so there's, there's all of the music coming from the radio station, but then mm-hmm. there's also the, the Bill Lee score to the film, which, um, uh, which is very different than the diegetic music. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out as something yeah, yeah. again. I, it makes me think, man, I should listen. I should listen to more movies really closely like this because because there were there were just lots of things that I that I noticed that I don't know that I would have that I tend to pay attention to that I really really liked. Are there other things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, I w- I, I, w- I want to talk about the prologue, so called. Uh, I, I want to talk about Rosie Perez's dancing. Um, to be frank, again, it's one of those things I had. Ne- I did not remember whatsoever that the movie started that way, and um, and I don't know what to do with it. I, I don't know who's dancing. I don't know if it's Tina or I don't know if it's Rosie Perez. Um, and I and I don't quite know. I, I don't quite know how to relate that to the movie as a whole. Um, all I can say is, boy, does it grab your attention. Um, and, and I think there's an, there's an expression of, um, of energy going on in, in that montage. And so there's some incredible, uh, both cinematography and chore- and choreography. Um, but I'm, but, but I honestly don't know what to do with it as a way to start the film. I say to myself, well, you know, could you start the film without that dance sequence? And I don't know. I, I think, I think maybe it's a way to, um, to put the audience in a certain mood, to tell the audience, you're going to move into a certain world now, and and this is going to help help ease you into it or help blast you into it, however you look at it. But I, I just I, thought, yeah. I just thought it was an amazing sequence. My jaw was kind of dropping as I was watching her do this, and I was like, how could I have forgotten that she did this? Well, and I think part of it, and again, I don't I don't know, but I think part of it too is it's not just that we have her dancing, but what song is she dancing to? Right. Right. And it's and yeah. that is a character in the movie. So, right. And it's yeah. the only time that you hear the whole song. Yeah, Otherwise, right. it's just when Radio Rahim shows up. So it's like if this is the the I mean, he went to to Chuck D and said, "Write me an anthem." And if this is the anthem for the movie here, it's so in some ways it's like uh, the overture, right? Like like I'm going to introduce this theme, and we're going to sit and listen to the whole thing, and then we're going to start. And then he creates this you know, uh, music video to it, to, you know, this dance video to it, to kind of um, maybe also as a kind of uh, visual overture. I don't know. Well, it also gives you a second title, right? Because you could say the title of the film is Fight the Power and the title of the film is Do the Right Thing. Um, So how do you do the right thing by, how do you fight the power in order to do the right thing? You know, that's, that's, that's again, again, one of those conundrums. Well, I, I, uh, absolutely, this is a film that I love. I think it's great. I, I, and I have loved spending this week, um, reading about this film, listening to, um, in part because Spike Lee has this, the new movie out there. So much Spike Lee con there's so many people writing, kind of revisiting the career of Spike Lee and, and, you know, and in also just in terms of the, the relevance of this movie, uh, to the world that we live in, there's so much, content out there so i would encourage anyone listening to this if you haven't already gone back and rewatched this movie do it and then you know start start listening to reading other content about this film and about spike lee in general uh and and uh turn on netflix and watch the five bloods because that's you know and it's a again we don't get movies from filmmakers like this all the time so I, one of the my other things with spike lee is even like a like a 
B minus Spike Lee movies pretty great, <laughs> you know, because because he yeah. do, he doesn't do ordinary stuff like yeah, he, no, whatever I mean, he does he elevates it. Yeah, I have several filmmakers like that. I'll just watch it no matter. Yeah, even if it's not their best work, it's always interesting work. It's the key thing. So uh, so what do you have for us next week? Well, I'm, I, I although I'm not necessarily a Rosie Perez fan, um, seeing Rosie Perez in this film, which was her film de debut. Uh, brought to mind a film I've been thinking about rewatching for a while. Uh, it is a film for which she received uh, an Academy Award nomination, which is Fearless. Um, and uh, the other reason I love I love Fearless is uh, it's one of um, Jeff Bridges' great performance. And Bridges is one of my favorite actors. He's one of those guys. Yeah, I would watch him do just about any anything. Um, uh, but it also has Isabella Rossellini in, in the cast as well. And um, I, I guess I, I, I guess I should give a trigger warning. However, um, I used the film in a class once, uh, my, one of my spiritual autobiography classes, and uh, a key event in this film was a plane crash. Um, and this is before we had trigger warnings back in the early '90s, and I did not realize that the film was going to traumatize one of my students who had a fear of flying. So, if anybody out there has a fear of flying and doesn't want to think about the big ones going down, you may not want to watch this film. But I love this film because it's about a man who and a woman who both survive a deadly plane crash and what they do with, they both have, they have two very different responses to survival. Um, and so it's a film that really, it, it's people coming to grips with survivor's guilt, uh, people coming to grips with their own mortality. Um, so it raises all kinds of, of big issues. It's by one of the great Australian directors, uh, Peter Weir. Um, so that's what I want to watch next week. Wow. And what excites me about this is I have never seen this movie. Everything I know about this movie is what you just said. So this is going to be an entirely fresh experience for me. And I'm very excited for it. And that makes me happy, Stan, because I wanted to come up with something. I was pretty, I thought maybe you hadn't seen. <laughs> That's, well, it's a perfect choice. I'm very excited. So that is all the time we have for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for watching along with us. And we will catch you next week in the video store.